0: Hey now we are getting over and i am the silver king adam silverstein here to lead you through these hard times data with episode 387 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast that's right getting over is back once again and it is thursday well it is technically Wednesday night, so you know exactly what that means. We are here to break down the latest across AEW and NXT for the very last time in 2022. That's right, Getting Over is putting together a number of special episodes for you, not just this week, but next week as well, to commemorate the end of 2022, moving of course into the beginning of 2023. Already this week we have our final WWE episode of the year, that is in our archives. Of course we're talking AEW and NXT today, and then On Thursday this week, we will have your 2022 year in review covering the wildest 12 months in the history of professional wrestling. Do not miss that this week. And then in that same spot next week, we will present to you the 2022 Getting Over Awards, aka the meaties, where we will crown the best and brightest, the worst and dimmest across professional wrestling in the year of our Lord 2022. We're talking Wrestler of the Year, Match of the Year, Booker of the Year, 0.0, Moment of the Year, Smack Talker of the Year. We cover it all, and we will do it for you in those 2022 Getting Over Awards. But as I said, you do not want to miss the 2022 Year in Review coming this week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Now, to further kick off this show, allow me to do what I always do, which is remind you that Getting Over is all- So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop those five-star ratings on Apple, take a few extra moments, leave a five-star written review, let everyone know why you listen and why they should subscribe to this podcast, and if you do, we will read those five-star reviews right here on the show. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast, not only for episode drops, uh, analysis, news, and highlights all week long, but because the ballot for those 2022 Getting Over Awards, aka the Medes, will be sent out this week with voting going on across the weekend into early next week. So get your ass over to Twitter, follow us at Getting Overcast, vote in those awards, join us as a Getting Overhead, and you will be able to get your one-third share of the vote counted for those Getting Over Awards, aka the Medes, as we present them to you next week. So with all of that said, let's get into today's show. We will, of course, be talking about AEW and NXT. But before we get to that, some breaking news went down literally minutes before we began taping today. And that is that Hermanos Lee defeated FTR to win the AAA World Tag Team Championships at AAA Noche de Campeones, which is Night of Champions. I think I didn't butcher that too badly, so I'll do a little Barry Horowitz on myself for pronouncing that decently. Uh, But among the Hermanos Lee is Dragon Lee, who announced after winning those titles that it was his last match in Mexico because he has signed with WWE. And, you know, we went ahead and taped our year-in-review episode on Tuesday thinking, hey, you know, nothing major is going to happen over the final few days of the year. So this is a topic that's actually not going to be covered in that show. But Dragon Lee, who appeared in AEW earlier this year, he was in a trios match with Andrade El Idolo and Roosh, they lost. Uh, Those guys, Roosh, by the way, is his real life brother, but he and Andrade ripped off his mask and then Dragon Lee was never seen again in AEW. So you saw him. My point is if you watch American wrestling uh, this year, he's also been, I think, a two-time Ring of Honor television champion. He's wrestled in New Japan. He is candidly one of the top young luchadors in the world right now. And it is kind of astounding, actually, that WWE signed him and did it in this way with Triple A crowning him a tag team champion moments before he announces that he's leaving the territory, coming to the United States, and of course, joining WWE. The expectation was that AEW would sign him. Obviously, his brother, Roosh, is there. Andrade is still there, as far as we know right now. Bandito recently signed with AEW, although we haven't seen him on television since he signed, so I have no idea what happened to Bandito. And of course, Pentagon and Rey Phoenix are both there, and they just put on a killer Um, six-man, of course, tag team match against the Elite, which we will talk about momentarily on the show. But suffice to say, this is a massive signing by WWE. They are clearly attempting to get into the Spanish-Latin markets. You know, I don't know exactly the proper way to say that. They're trying to attack all of them. Uh, Axiom in NXT, uh, they've masked him up, the former A-kid, and he is just soaring right now. Uh, both literally and figuratively, he's getting super popular, way over with the crowd, and he's just doing the best work that he has so far in WWE, bringing in Dragon Lee, presumably as another masked luchador, is extremely interesting, I don't know that they'll tag them, I kind of hope that they don't, you know, Uh, but it's certainly possible given the way, historically at least, WWE has been, of course. Triple H has not proven to be the exact same way, but we don't know. Uh, Point being, though, this, like I said, is one of the most talented young luchadors in the world. He's probably around 26, 27, 28 years old. He is truly spectacular in the ring. He is of the same vein as Bandito, Vikingo. Maybe he's a slight step under Roosh, but I mean, they are really all together as among the best young luchadors in the world. And for WWE to get him is certainly a huge coup. So congratulations to Paul Levesque and Triple H for doing that. ESPN reports that Lee signed with WWE in early December. He plans to begin with NXT in January. And he also told ESPN that he hopes to be the next Rey Mysterio Jr. And honestly, what Luchador doesn't. He said he always wanted to be in WWE. That was his quote-unquote dream. He wants to follow in Mysterio's footsteps. And he also said that Finn Balor, interestingly enough, was someone who helped him get signed and kind of uh, threaded the boundaries between what he was currently doing and what WWE was looking for. So that is extremely interesting. Big news to kick off today's show and certainly something we will talk more about in January once we see Dragon Lee in NXT. But that is not where we are going to start this week. NXT will be the latter half of the show. We will kick things off with AEW. And just a reminder for any first-time listeners, we do have timestamps in our episode descriptions. So if you want to skip from one section of the show to the other, you only want to listen to one part, Uh, maybe you did listen to AEW, you're coming back, you know, later in the day, you need to listen to NXT. You lost your place. There are timestamps in the episode description. You can skip around, but as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. So as I said, let's kick things off with AEW. We're going to mix together Dynamite and Rampage based on storyline. Let's begin the way AEW Dynamite began. That was with Brian Danielson against Ethan Page. MJF appeared in a suite before the bell saying he found the only hot chick in Colorado. They were in Denver. This was odd given MJF is famously and newly engaged. So I don't know why they did it. She didn't play a role in anything and we never saw MJF again. He was there in the suite during the match and that was it. No promo really. I mean, he did speak on the mic. Um, He talked some shit, but you know, he didn't come to the ring for a promo. He didn't confront Brian. That's all we saw of MJF for the entire show. Uh, Brian and Stokely Hathaway got into it a couple times. Brian hit a hurricanrana out of the corner. Page did a really cool, like, pulling power slam outside and then a step-through cutter inside. Then he took Brian off the ropes with an avalanche power slam. Brian escaped Ego's edge, countering with the running knee, stomping him, and then winning with a head hook submission. Paige was knocked out cold before he even put the move in, and the referee immediately called the match. Brian was clearly the right winner here. It was surprising they didn't make this, like, an official number one contendership, nor wait until Seattle to do the match where Brian could win pretty much in his hometown. Now, maybe there's a storyline reason they're going to set up MJF to get a lot of heat opposite Danielson next week. That could possibly be the case, but it is Seattle and I don't know why they didn't open the show with Danielson Page next week. And then in hour two, you do a Danielson and MJF confrontation or something, if that is the plan at all. So just a little bit surprising for me, but still a very good match. Uh, High quality wrestling from bell to bell. Four stars, A-minus, just nothing wrong with it whatsoever. Uh, the main event of Dynamite was the TNT Championship Samoa Joe against Wardlow while being interviewed backstage by Renee Paquette. Wardlow got hit in the knee Nancy Kerrigan style by Joe. It was a weak blow at first, but then the second one looked okay. He did this with a steel pipe. Joe came out for the match in the main event. Wardlow did not appear when his entrance music hit. As Joe talked trash, Wardlow made his way down. He eventually hit a flying senton on a pretty impressive Escalera corkscrew for a false finish. Wardlow took Joe off the ropes with a powerbomb, but then he tried to hit a regular one. His knee gave out from the attack earlier. Joe chopped Wardlow's knee out again, put him in the coquina clutch, and won via knockout to retain the title. Wardlow was pissed after the bell, but as he stood up, Joe stood still, appearing like he was going to give him some respect. Instead, he attacked Wardlow, I think it was with the ROH, TV title, and grabbed some scissors, Joe headbutted the referee, and then cut off Wardlow's man bun. Darby Allin's music hit after that, and he caught Joe from behind with a skateboard shot to end Dynamite. Now, I put this match second after Danielson Page in this review because it continued a trend I discussed on this very episode last week. And that is AEW feeling that they need to protect literally every wrestler by basically having no one actually submit and instead relying on the knockout or the referee stoppage. That was the proper finish for this main event because you can't exactly have Wardlow submit and the Coquina Clutch is legitimately a rear naked chokehold. So it's completely sensible for someone to pass out and for the referee to stop the match. But that's the exact reason you do not do a nearly identical finish in the opening match. I don't see why Ethan Page can't tap out to Brian Danielson. Of course he can. So I found that to be ridiculous as a finish, but in this spot, it was completely appropriate. Now, as far as this match goes, oh, we got two big meaty men me tonight. and we absolutely did get that. But it wasn't, in my opinion, anything particularly special or noteworthy. The pre-match attack gave Wardlow a fair excuse for losing. The post-match attack was really well done. And there's no way anyone saw the haircutting coming. I certainly didn't. At the same time, it's kind of an odd choice to cut his man bun off because it was a pretty distinctive look for Wardlow. And I can definitely see him looking a lot more generic with like a regular buzz cut. So it's surprising that they did that. Uh, The Darby attack was also really well done. It sets up an expected match between the two, though I'm sure Joe will win and Wardlow will eventually take the title or titles off of him. Joe singularly was incredible throughout this entire episode, though. He was really at his best, maybe the MVP of Dynamite, potentially. Now, those were two of three matches that I would consider bangers on Dynamite this Wednesday, the third being Death Triangle against the Elite, the sixth match, Death Triangle leading 3-2 in the best of seven series, and this one, of course, was falls count anywhere. Both teams were fighting backstage in a hallway when the bell just rang for the match, Pac did a moonsault off a riser. Nick Jackson did a cannonball seated sent on Pentagon through a table backstage. Ray Phoenix hit a tornado off the tunnel before Kenny Omega caught him immediately after with a V trigger. Matt Jackson did a series of Northern Light suplexes down the ramp with a double one to finish the series. Matt then caught Penta with a destroyer. Phoenix immediately followed with a frog splash. That happened in the ring. Omega hit a V trigger with a trash can around Pac's head and followed with a doctor bomb into a trash can for a near fall. Then he ate Fear Factor outside. The Young Bucks hit the Meltzer driver on Penta outside and the BTE trigger on him inside for two more broken falls. Matt accidentally super kicked Nick, and then he got stuck in the Brutalizer. As he was just about to tap out, Omega, who I didn't even know was alive you know, after taking Fear Factor, he's with Ray Phoenix in the crowd. He hits One Winged Angel on Phoenix through a table, For the 1-2-3 to even the series at 3-3. Now the finish was a bit confusing given the Omega Phoenix spot did not occur anywhere near the ring. They could have done it on the stage into the announce table, they could have done it into the timekeeper's table at ringside, and it would have hit better. This was just in another part of the crowd, there was a different camera on them. And man, you know, you know what's going to frustrate me, Phoenix is always the one taking the fall in these matches, yet he's the one of the three in this group. And I'm not saying PAX, not great, he is. And I'm not saying Pentagon's not great, he is too. But Phoenix is truly incredible, yet he is the one always losing. Now, after the bell, Tony Schiavone called it an amazing match, which it was not. Excalibur and Taz called it a spectacle. That is the perfect description for what this was. It was a sight to see. The definition of a spot fest but in the best way. There was really no psychology or storytelling. I think it may have been the first match that did not use the bell hammer, unless they did and I just completely missed it. I found it to be a step up from the last two based purely on the spots and the work rate. There were basically zero botches. It was just really fluid and a high level of wrestling across the board. But man, there's like no story or no psychology in the match. It was spot after spot after spot. And I am not going to overgrade a match that is just a spot fest between six guys that we know can do major spots. So I went 4.25 stars at an A. That's still an incredible grade. I loved the match. It was very entertaining. I would watch it again, but I'm also not going to watch it again. There's nothing that's going to say that was so good and it was so smart and the finish was so great that you need to go watch that again. I won't. But was it super entertaining on TV? You bet your ass it was. It should also be noted that Kenny Omega wore a Kota Ibushi t-shirt during this match, and the last time Kenny did something like that on AEW television, CM Punk wound up in AEW. So, is it possible that Kota Ibushi is on his way to AEW? I don't know that for sure, but it doesn't seem completely unlikely, and that would be certainly exciting how it would work With their current storylines, I have absolutely no idea. It also could have just been Omega showing support for his golden lover, and if that was the case, then it was sweet for him to do so. On Rampage, we had the $300,000 Battle Royal. This match opened with commentary telling us Rampage is getting better every week. It just remains so odd to me the way AEW talks about itself on air. Anyway, this was basically a Royal Rumble, but with trios. Top flight with AR Fox along with John Moxley, Claudio Castagnoli, and Roosh, They were the final six. The trio saw no reason to gang up on anyone despite having the numbers advantage. Claudio knocked Roosh out with an uppercut. Mox punched Fox out of the ring. Hangman Page interfered as expected. He attacked Mox. That gave an opening for his elimination. Mox then took out 12 guys with a single flying axe handle onto Hangman, which was just a ridiculous spot. Uh, Top Flight, ridiculous as in bad, it was ridiculous that he delivered one axe handle to one person and 12 people fell down like it was dominoes. Uh, Top Flight eventually teamed up to eliminate Claudio with a huracrana over the ropes to win the money. Really strange match format that led to an extremely slow and plodding battle royal. I never really felt any energy during it except for the brief hangman interference. And even that was kind of toned down. Plus, it was blatantly obvious booking. I think we called this out last week. Now, top flight winning was not obvious and it was cool to see them get a moment. I wish they actually got the $300,000, which I'm quite sure they did not. On Dynamite, Hangman was frustrated that he's still not cleared for action. The doctor told him to calm down and stop attacking Mox because he's about two weeks away from clearing concussion protocol, which would be at that loaded Los Angeles show. This was such an eye roll for me because not only is Hangman continuously fighting despite supposedly not being cleared... He shouldn't be allowed in the arena if that's the case. But concussion protocol is not a rolling timeline. You're either in it and not cleared, or you're out of it and you are cleared. There's no projected timeline, like with a sprained ankle, that can go through rehabilitation. It's the brain. Like, it doesn't work that way. I'm glad that AEW wants to be closer to real sports. They said that at the beginning of the company launching. They've gotten away from it significantly over the last three years. That's great. Keep injury angles in the realistic realm if you want to, but you can't talk about concussion protocol in front of your fan base, most of whom I would assume watch the NFL. It's the same demographic and know what a concussion protocol is and is not. And then just say, oh yeah, he's about two weeks away from clearing concussion protocol. No, that's not how it works. Please don't treat us like morons. That really frustrated me. On Dynamite, we had Mox and Claudio against Top Flight, of course, coming out of this battle royal. Dante played jump rope while Darius was in the swing. Claudio hit the neutralizer for a false finish. Mox hit paradigm shift on Dante outside. Darius slapped Claudio, so he hit an European uppercut coming back for the win. It was a good match. It put over Top Flight as a team that can legitimately contend, and it took two of the top wrestlers in the company all the way to their limit. Just wasn't as great as the crowd made it sound with their chants. But it was a really strong TV match with a decent short build coming out of the Battle Royal. I do want to give credit to this crowd, by the way, because they were absolutely fantastic in Denver. They were screaming all night, chanting. Every match was awesome. Everything was holy shit. You know, any match on the show with the exception of one basically could have been match of the night to this crowd. Now, that said, all the matches were really good, but the crowd put them over the top. So big credit to that Denver AEW crowd. On Rampage, Daniel Garcia told Sammy Guevara he doesn't like him, but he will give his best effort as a mentee, uh, since that is what Chris Jericho wants. Guevara called him a tight ass and then hugged him, saying they will do great things together in 2023. You know, teaming them up as a bit of an odd couple, despite both being young. It's kind of smart, and it's decently interesting, especially since they would rock together in the ring as a tag team. Thought it was a good segment overall. On Dynamite, Jericho called Ricky Starks foolish and small-minded for not joining the JAS, because he's the best potential mentor in the game. He called himself the Wizard and the Ocho, saying he always wins, and action Andretti getting a fireball in his face is proof of it. He suggested Andretti savor his win and stay away from AEW, then he promised to put an end to the Starks experiment. Starks later said Jericho hates him because he's a star that Chris does not control. He promised a masterclass in ass-whipping from legend to legend next week. I thought it was good promos from both guys. The wizard shit, it's grading and so ridiculous from Jericho, but Starks did come off really well here. On Rampage, Eddie Kingston with Ortiz said he's been waiting for House of Black to sign a contract to fight them. He had a great line prompting them to like do their creepy shit and just meet me in the ring. They appeared on screen with Malachi Black saying some convoluted stuff to make Eddie question Ortiz's friendship. They went back and forth and then shook their heads. I enjoyed the added element to the feud, but just have the guys accept the damn match in the same segment. Like, why can't they just accept it? Why are you stretching this out? Accept the match, do it next week on Rampage, and then move forward. Like, this doesn't need to go for multiple weeks. On Dynamite, best friends and Kip Sabian were backstage being interviewed. Sabian said he wanted an all-Atlantic title match since he eliminated Orange Cassidy from the Battle Royal. Orange noted that Trent uh, uh, Beretta eliminated Sabian immediately after, so he would actually deserve the title opportunity first by using that logic. Trent was hesitant, but Orange made the match for Rampage. Now, the logic here was a bit faulty, just considering Orange has been handing out title matches like candy, and Sabian's wanted one for weeks. So why is he the wrestler where Orange casts He's like, I'm going to fight anyone except you. You have to work for it. Like. It does create interesting booking with Orange fighting Trent, because they're not just two faces, but they're two friends and kind of teammates going after one another. But keeping Sabian at arm's length just doesn't really make much sense, given, again, he's accepted all comers in the most ridiculous ways for the last two months. On Dynamite, Swerve Strickland was with mogul affiliates backstage, saying, these guys believe in my vision. Wheeler Yuta stepped up promising violence if Swerve would face him on Rampage. This was rough all the way around. Basically, we didn't get any follow-up on the mystery dude, plus a really boring backstage segment with Yuta cutting a terrible promo himself. Granted, look, this was dead on arrival last week, but AEW could have perhaps salvaged something with an interesting backstage segment or doing something with them in the ring, having Swerve explain himself, whatever the case might be. Now, maybe something interesting will transpire on Rampage. I doubt it. I assume it's going to be an interference finish with Swerve winning the match. On Dynamite, Hook fought Balaam Lynx. Hook won with Red Rum in a minute. Stokely talked trash. He walked out after. Jungle Boy came out to even the odds and attack Lee Moriarty. Big Bill got in Hook's face and the Neophyte was just unafraid. He stared him down. He tried to counter a chokeslam into a T-bone, but got put back up in the chokeslam when Jungle Boy ran into the ring with a 2x4 and hit Big Bill in the back. This is like two or three weeks in a row now with like a similar segment. And we still don't know why Jungle Boy is getting hooks back. Jungle Boy got attacked last week. He showed no ill effects from it. I'm completely uninterested by this. It makes no sense for Jungle Boy to be involved here. Uh, The whole thing, it should be on Rampage or Dark or something like that. It just does not belong on Dynamite. On Dynamite also, we had Ruby Soho and Willow Nightingale against Ty Mello and Anna JAS. Ruby hit no future for a false finish. Soho ate DD Ty with Willow breaking the fall. Jay tried to use a chair with the referee stealing it as a distraction. That let Melo throw Soho a chair that she caught and held for 10 seconds, so Melo could hit a pump kick, followed by the tie for the win. This got a good amount of time, and it was actually solid in some spots, but it was extremely sloppy in the finish. I did like the booking, both in terms of the finish itself with the chairs and having the JAS women go over for a change, but it was just okay overall, and this was the only time we saw women's wrestlers on the entire two-hour show. You know, sometimes they only do one match, but recently they've done some backstage interviews or talking segments or promos, whatever the case. We got none of that on Dynamite. And it was even worse on Rampage because on Rampage, it was Jade Cargill against Vert Vixen. That's a wrestler's name, like singularly, all together, Vert Vixen, one name. Cargill won with jaded, in less than five minutes. And nearly all of those five minutes, I'm serious, like I didn't do a stopwatch deal, but if I had to guess, four minutes and 15 seconds of that five-minute match was during commercial break. It was also the only women's match on Rampage. Of course, we knew that was the case. And And lastly on Rampage, Anthony Bowens and Billy Gunn fought Jay Lethal and Jeff Jarrett. Max Caster was not available due to the guitar shot last week. He was selling that. Satnam Singh slowly entered the ring as Gunn had Lethal prone. So Billy just clotheslined him over the ropes and then Singh stood out there and chose not to attack again. Sanjay Dutt then hit Billy with the worst low blow I've ever seen, and Billy got pinned after eating lethal injection. My lord, was this a tough watch. Really, the only good parts of Rampage were the non-matches. That's how bad Rampage was from an in-ring perspective. And then on Dynamite, it did redeem itself a little bit because The Acclaimed had a rap video where Caster had a couple really great lines about Jarrett Not drawing a dime, stealing stuff like Kurt Angle's wife, something about global force and TNA as well. It was easily the best one of these like rap video segments that we've gotten from them, and more than anything else, it was because of the lyrics. He really went at Double J and tore him a new asshole. So congrats, Caster, that was great. I still hate this feud. It shouldn't be happening. There's a million tag teams. Uh, Of high quality in AEW and Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal should not be the top contenders for the AEW World Tag Team titles. That said, this segment on Dynamite, super entertaining. Two thumbs up for Max Caster and the acclaimed regarding that. So that was AEW this week. Definitely uh, some really dynamite pun, not initially intended, but now that I said it, intended. Uh, Dynamite matches on Dynamite, three of them just were true bangers, super exciting. But other than that, and I know that discounting those isn't like fair necessarily, but other than that, it was a really, like nothing much happened over the three hours that we just discussed. Rampage and Dynamite, like MJF didn't speak or really do anything. He's the world champion. Um, The women's champion, Jamie Hayter, wasn't seen on either show, although I do believe she was on Dynamite last week, but we got no Britt Baker, no Soraya, no Tony Storm. I mean, it was very odd uh, the way these two shows were booked and the fact that like, you know, I know John Moxley, of course, is still wrestling on Dynamite, but every week now it's like Mox on Rampage, tune into Rampage to see Mox. I get it. They're trying to increase the ratings of that show, but it's really odd that Tony Khan just did not give a flying fuck about Rampage for what, three months, maybe even longer. And now he's like pushing Mox on that show every single week to try to make something of it again. I don't know if it's pressure from the network Or if it's him just realizing the error of his ways, whatever the case, it's just been odd for me. In some ways, it's made Rampage better, but in other ways, it feels a little bit forced. Uh, The Mox Hangman story developing primarily on Rampage with, you know, inklings of it on Dynamite. I don't know that it's the best decision to put one of your top storylines on that show when you have nearly double your audience watching on Dynamite. Uh, But that's something that we can evaluate as we go into 2023 and we see the special show Um, the second week of 2023 in Los Angeles. And of course, the initial show on January 4th, which is new year, new dynamite. There's going to be a new video package, likely a new set, and supposedly a new look and feel to the show because AEW brought in that guy uh, from WWE. So we will see what all of that looks like next week. And certainly we will give a thorough evaluation of it right here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. Now with that, Let's move over to NXT and NXT was a mediocre taped filler episode, but that's what we knew it was going to be. I think they taped two or three shows together just to get out of 2022, give people time off for the holidays and then get into 2023, of course, where they're doing a big show in week one and then they're doing New Year's Evil, I believe in week two. So uh, plenty of stuff still to look forward to in NXT, but this week, not particularly awesome. Uh, Braun Breaker admitted backstage that he fell into Grayson Waller's trap last week, but would head to the ring and call him out on the show. Mackenzie Mitchell informed him Waller actually wasn't there. He sent in a video from Sydney, Australia, giving Breaker credit for being the most dangerous man in NXT, but saying he is simply smarter than Braun. Waller showed us around Sydney, uh, basically to show what he sacrificed to join NXT and say that he wanted to become bigger than Australia would allow him to be. Braun kept getting angrier and angrier watching this video, and then he destroyed the TV when the video ended. Waller's video was, you know, strong enough. It it was kind of fun to see him, uh, you know, talking shit in Australia. But Breaker, man, he's just not hitting for me anymore. Like, everything about him now, and it always has to a small degree, but everything seems so corny and generic. I've steadily lost interest in him all year. And even though this is actually a decent feud, like Waller and Breaker makes a lot of sense together. I just don't care about it that much. Now, maybe it's because the title reign has been extended far too long. But for me, the guy just doesn't really have a personality. He's a former wrestler's son who's been champion, and he's been booked extremely strong, and he likes to break stuff. And he has a temper, and it's tough to control it sometimes. Other times, he can control it perfectly. He's cool, calm, and collected. Some people get under his skin. It never matters because he wins anyway. You know, I don't know. He's he's way better in the ring than he is as a character. And, you know, for anyone thinking like Braun Breaker should get called up to the main roster, I've said this probably numerous times on this podcast already. He needs to drop that title and remain in NXT for at least another year to work on a character and a gimmick without the crutch of being champion. And then you call him up once he's figured that out. Because right now, He's generic bruiser number eight. He just is. And yeah, there's a lot of things we like about him. He's super talented in the ring. He's way better than he should be for his level of experience and his age. He's a natural. He's gonna be a major star, but he is not ready for prime time. And I hope WWE, Triple H, and Shawn Michaels, I hope they all realize that. Roxanne Perez was backstage saying her honeymoon phase would run out quickly, so she needs to be on point to ensure she lives up to the history of the NXT Women's Championship. This was a lot more robotic than I'm used to hearing from her. It sounded like almost it was a fourth or fifth take at the promo where she maybe didn't do it right the first couple times. It wasn't terrible, but she has done plenty better, um, particularly when she speaks live. This was nothing, uh, you know, I don't even have an opinion on it. Toxic Attraction were in their lounge going over their incredible run in 2022, saying the eyes of the world remain on them despite the adversity they have faced. JC Jane promised to rebuild, reconstruct, and return to glory all starting with taking out Roxanne Perez. I thought it was really strong stuff from both of them in a taped segment. It was a good way to address the obvious without saying it directly. And they even alluded to it visually by leaving a gap between them on the couch as they spoke. My hope was that they would get called up as a legitimate tag team on the main roster. Perhaps the idea is that they need some seasoning without Mandy Rose being by their side. But man, I'm telling you, inserting Sonya Deville directly into this group in Mandy Rose's place it would 100% work. Sonya is kind of floundering on the main roster right now. Even when she does appear, she's in short matches and she's not really being taken serious. Her bringing in Toxic Attraction and standing almost in the same role as Bailey, where, yeah, she wrestles and they can do trios matches and you know maybe she can contend for some singles titles, but where she's also like their manager, where she's the person who has their back and is propping them up and trying to get them in the women's tag team division, get them championship opportunities. That would be a great role for Sonia because what have we seen with her in WWE? She's pretty decent in the ring, nothing terrible, nothing great, but where she's really strong is on the mic as a character and really as an authority figure telling people what to do. Well, guess what being a manager is? It's being an authority figure telling people what to do. I would throw Sonia Deville right into this group, have her directly replace Mandy Rose, bring Toxic up to the main roster and you have a ready-made group, maybe you turn damage control face, maybe you try to make toxic baby faces, or maybe you just wait until, of course, another baby face team wins the women's tag team titles, and then you have toxic up, and they're able to challenge them. Uh, Wesley fought Tony D'Angelo at a North American championship match. Backstage, D'Angelo expressed his excitement at the opportunity before Stack said he took care of DiJack in a closed-door meeting last week, and he promised DiJack would not be an issue for their match. This was an exceedingly slow fight. Uh, they both were telling the story of a leg injury that made it quite boring. D'Angelo put Wesley into the announce table with a front slam. The champion went on a run but got power out of the corner. When Tony went to the top rope, Dijak appeared and took Stacks out of the frame with a chokehold. Wesley then caught D'Angelo distracted with his double black with his double backflip pele kick to retain the title in the main event. This was probably Wesley's like worst match all year. And I'm not saying that it's his fault at all. The pairing just did not work. D'Angelo's slow plotting style. doesn't mesh with a high-flying babyface whose offense is predicated on spots. And anytime you're doing rest holds after a commercial break in a championship match, because you're trying to work a leg injury going both ways, you're just not going to have a much better than average match at best. At least both of them can move on. The eventual Wesley versus Dijak match I assume it's going to happen at Vengeance Day. That should hit because Dijak can work really well with smaller, high-flying type of dudes. So we'll see if that comes. I'm still not loving what they're doing with Dijak. And like I said, this match just did not hit for me. Now, a match that did hit for me was Julius Creed against JD McDonough. Both cut promos to open NXT with Creed promising a receipt as JD offered the gift of Julius feeling the same pain that Brutus already did when they fought. Julius caught JD and dropped him flat onto the announce table. He later countered Devil inside with a knee before eating a running Spanish fly. Julius hit a full-release flip-over German suplex. Then he ate a Brain Buster and dodged a Moonsault, only to catch JD with his rolling slam and the Basement Lariat for what must be considered, at least it was for me, a surprising win. After the bell, Indusher challenged the Creeds for New Year's Evil and promised to destroy them. JD has been positioned as a main eventer since joining NXT. So to see Julius beat him clean in singles was a bit shocking, especially given the Creeds are largely still a tag team. Not that JD is in the middle of a feud or anything or a run, and I guess having him beat both Creeds would have made them look weak in retrospect, but it was nevertheless not what I expected. Damn good match though, with JD working really hard to help Julius shine in his victory, and Julius once again proved his ceiling is going to be incredibly high on the main roster, both as a tag team with his brother and solo on his own. Uh, Wendy Chu fought Cora Jade. Chu ran down to attack at the bell, but quickly got taken down. She came back with a powerbomb out of the corner and countered Cora, running her into the middle turnbuckle. Then Wendy hit a double underhook Uranagi, plus the top rope inverted splash Vader style, to beat Jade and overcome her bully in the storyline. Now, this was the right booking, given Jade is not particularly strong right now, nor is she a top contender. I saw people complaining, oh, Cora Jade shouldn't be beaten by Wendy Chu. She should be challenging Roxanne Perez for the title. They just feuded recently. That's the feud that you put on a major show. Like you do Cora Jade against Roxanne Perez for the title at Stand and Deliver. You don't just do it. You know, you you don't have Cora Jade win a couple matches now and have her fight her at New Year's Evil or Vengeance Day. They got a long way to go. So no, rushing Cora Jade to a title match, not the right move. You're telling a babyface heel story of Wendy Chu being bullied Of course she has to overcome her bully. So I thought that was definitely the right decision. It also, like I said, keeps Jade away from Perez, doesn't have people thinking of her as the number one contender. My only issue was the match was short. It was good, but I thought it would be longer and a little bit more involved for a storyline that's been told over multiple weeks. I just didn't think it got enough time. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams were backstage clowning Apollo Crews and Axiom, respectively. Melo said 2023 is the year he becomes NXT champion. It was a really good call and response promo from them. Trick's catchphrase being, whoop that trick, it does not make a shred of sense. And I'm kind of surprised that they keep using it. But other than that, these guys are pure entertainment on the mic. Great short segment to promote their matches. Fallon Henley fought Kiana James backstage. Jensen was checking himself out in the shirt that James gave him. When Briggs and Henley clearly questioned his loyalty. Now, of course, this was for the rights to Fallon Henley's bar against the lean that Kiana James put on it. Briggs and Jensen got into it a little bit at ringside during the match. James had a tilting gut buster. Fallon then tripped her using the ropes with Kiana selling an ankle injury. That left an opening for Fallon, hit a running sidekick, and retained control of her family bar. Jensen clearly felt bad for James after the bell, with Briggs telling him, concentrate on Henley, celebrate with her. The finish was smart. The match was okay. Both of them have done better. Schism fought Idris Anofe, Malik Blade, and Odyssey Jones. Schism had a decent tape promo before the match. Blade splashed off Jones' shoulders. Ava Rain got in Booker T's face literally during the match to repeat their mantra. It was kind of a weird moment. Odyssey got the hot tag. Anofe hit an elbow drop for a broken fall. Jones no-sold five Tope Suicidas before finally getting knocked down on a sixth one that came from Gacy. Really inventive spot. I don't remember seeing that before. Schism hit a double Doomsday Device, a double Codebreaker and then Gacy's handspring lariat to get the win. Look, I gotta say, schism still is not for me. All right, don't get it twisted. But after nearly a year of shit, they have turned a corner. This was the best and most unique they have looked in the ring together. The aesthetic of their faction, it's improved massively. And overall, it's just coming across better. So credit to Shawn Michaels and the creative team for making key necessary adjustments to something that simply was not working one iota previously. Let's not forget, they debuted as the Maroon Druids, and both of them looked ridiculous. At least one of them is starting to get their look back a little bit. They all look better in terms of their ring gear. Ava Reigns adding an element to it. Schism right now is way better off than it was two months ago, let alone six months ago. And again, credit is deserved for making necessary changes there. Drew Gulak had an invitational. Hank Walker was in the ring with Gulak and three jobbers. Gulak was on an earpiece microphone throughout the entire thing, talking to the crowd and Hank kind of showing off. Gulak put the first guy in a chicken wing. Then he did an amateur wrestling back and forth with Tavian Heights, quickly putting him in a sharpshooter style calf crusher. Third was Miles Bourne, who has appeared on NXT Level Up a few times. He pissed Gulak off with a fireman's carry, only to get caught in a chokehold. Unlike the first two, where Gulak released the submissions immediately as soon as they tapped, he kept this one locked in on Bourne out of anger. Charlie Dempsey came down with a challenge and it wound up being Walker facing Dempsey next week on NXT. This was okay, a little bit awkward in its execution. Plus, we've seen this before with Timothy Thatcher not that long ago. I'm interested enough to see what happens next week. I really would not hate a situation where Dempsey just kicks the shit out of Hank Walker and Gulak's like, yeah, this guy's the truth. And convinces him to join him Gulak turns heel now it's Gulak dempsey they had a third guy a fourth guy and now you have a little mini faction in nxt that's the way i would go with it we will see what nxt ultimately does uh lyra valkyra fought lash legend as we suspected we talked about this upon her debut they changed her entrance they saved the storm cloud shit until she got in the ring it was still unnecessary to have it but it was way better than her initial appearance Legend dominated at the bell and hit a nice tilt to whirl backbreaker, but she missed a flipping handspring moonsault and did a really poor job taking a tornado DDT from Lyra prior to eating a roundhouse kick and a falling splash, with Lyra approving to 2 0. Now, this was a mixed bag. Legend is still super rough in the ring. Lyra is quite good, but I mentioned last week, you know, she used to do the, the leg drop, the flying leg drop, which was way better. Than the one that Carmelo Hayes currently does. She did the flying leg drop in NXT. So they didn't want them to have the same finisher. Fine. They had Lyra do a frog splash instead. And it just looked awful last week. It didn't make any sense for her character. The falling splash, it's a little bit better because she doesn't do it like she just jumps for a regular splash, like an Uso splash, for example. She like almost leaned down from the top rope to put as much emphasis and strength into the splash off the ropes as she possibly could. So it was very unique looking. I, I'm sure others have done it like that before, but I've never seen it. Do I love it as a finisher? No, I think she's way better than that as a finisher. I don't love the flying leg drop. I've said numerous times, Melo needs to stop doing that. It is a career shortener. You're landing on your tailbone time and time again. So Melo shouldn't be doing it. I'm glad to some degree Lyra's not because it's not going to shorten her career because she's no longer doing it. I don't know if this is going to be her final finisher. They need to keep looking at it. But I got to say, I was very happy that I gave two major criticisms to this upon her debut, which was her entrance and her finisher. And they recognized that, you know, separately. Of course, I'm not part of their staff. And even if someone happens to be listening to the show, I doubt that they made any decisions based on what I said. But my point is that, the things that I pointed out were clearly errors that they went ahead and rectified. And I was extremely excited to see that. And it gives me hope that in this developmental process, they don't only make changes in the long-term, which is what we saw with Schism that we just discussed. It took a long time for them to fix that, but also in the short-term. Now they may have made those fixes and changes for Lyra. They haven't made them for Scripps. So let's go ahead and talk about the final segment here for NXT Ikemin Jiro against Scripps. Jiro said backstage how important the jacket is to his personality, and he promised that he would win it back. Scripps hit a cool running torneo, but he missed a standing shooting star press. Jiro then got pushed off the top rope with Scripps hitting the flying seated senton for the win. Scripps then laid Jiro's jacket on top of his body. The crowd was completely dead for this, and it's really tough to blame them. The wrestling was actually fine, but there was no reason to buy into either of these guys. Jiro caring about this jacket, when commentary at the start of the match said he has over a hundred of them, that didn't make any sense. It was just a rough segment from start to finish. And look, I previously said Scripps was dead on arrival. That is more than accurate at this point because this was his third or maybe fourth appearance and absolutely nothing about the gimmick or the look works. It's kind of antithetical to what we thought we were getting from his debut vignettes. And the same thing to some degree happened with Axiom, except Axiom came off better than his vignettes and Scripps is now coming off even worse than his vignettes. And those vignettes for Scripps were worse than the Axiom ones anyway. So I just, I can't believe that they're still going with this. You know, everyone knows it's Reggie. So you're either going to put the guy in a mask and make it clear that, and try to hide the fact that it's Reggie, or don't have him wear a mask, let it be Reggie, and have him cut promos and explain what he's doing and all this. We're just seeing this guy who looks weird, has a strange mannerism with his hand, does a lot of flippy shit, and it doesn't work in any way whatsoever. So really, when something like that happens, there's only one thing we can say here on the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. zero point. Zero. Zero point zero, Mr. Blutarski. That is one big pile of shit. Yeah, as of right now, scripts, the character, the gimmick, the whole deal, it is one big pile of shit. And Reggie deserves a lot better than what he's getting right now. So hopefully they should just take him on TV and completely repackage him and try this again. Well, folks, that is it from this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling podcast, the penultimate edition. Of 2022. As I mentioned, we already have our final WWE episode of the year in the can. It's in our podcast feed, so do not miss that. And coming up before the week is out will be our 2022 Year in Review episode. You are going to want to listen to that show. It is notably long. Chris and I took a lot of time breaking down the wildest 12 months in professional wrestling history. Next week, we will have another WWE show another AEW NXT show, and we will also present to you the 2022 Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, that special show coming next week. You will be able to vote for the Getting Over Awards, aka The Meaties, by following us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. Keep an eye out for that ballot. We will tweet it out a few times through the end of this week. And over the weekend, you get a chance to vote and all of your collective votes, our getting overheads will be one third of the total an equal share to myself and Chris. We will do ranked choice voting and we will crown a number of awards, about 20 of them, everything from wrestler of the year to 0.0 moment of the year. We love doing the getting over awards. For you, it's great to deliver the meaties and crown award winners at the end of a fantastic year of professional wrestling. It's the third time that we're doing it, and I hope you all anticipate it next week as much as we do, bringing it to you. So as I said, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast. You can vote in those awards. You get episode drops. You know when they go live. Highlights, news, analysis all week long on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And please do not forget that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast podcast. So head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify, drop a five-star rating on Apple, take a little extra time, leave a five-star written review, tell people why you listen to the show and why they should subscribe. And if you leave that five-star written review, we will read it for you right here on the podcast. Thank you all once again for joining me and Silver King, Adam Silver King here getting over wrestling podcast. At this point, it is now time for me to sign off and leave you with just three final words. Bye for now.